0: it's the plain text podcast where listening's a must a source you can trust when security's discussed troubleshooters on the track it's A stool core rapper or duo security enforce all the factors target acquired main event game set always tuned in never take a rain check keep our ear to the clear if you want to say bet decipher the meaning we present the plain text And welcome back to the Plain Text Podcast. This is episode four, and I'm your host, Dave Lewis. And thank you very much for tuning back in. I know it's been a bit of a hiatus since our last episode, but, you know, the world events overtook, and I just said, you know, I think we just need to take a step back and enjoy things uh, from a different perspective, and we'll do all of this later. So my guest today is someone who has, uh, I-, I would call it a very good friend, former employer, And on my first day at work, he was good enough to play the Canadian National Anthem 27 times because I started on July 1st. And so every time he played it, I had to stand up and salute. So I would like to welcome to the show Andy Ellis, CSO for Akamai Technologies. Welcome, Andy.
1: Thanks, Dave. I had forgotten about that day, but I appreciate (laughs) you reminding me because that was a really good day. That was actually. It was rather fantastic, too,
0: because everybody was getting ready for July 4th at the uh, the office in uh, Cambridge. So it was very chill. It was a great way to start a new gig.
1: Yeah, it's, it's weird because, you know, everybody forgets that the Canadian holidays look an awful lot like the U.S. holidays, but they're just different times. Like y'all just celebrated Thanksgiving. Exactly. And no candied
0: yams or marshmallows. So, you know, we got that going for us. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole idea about this uh, particular podcast format is to talk about lessons learned uh, from people that have been around for quite a while. And I mean, let's be honest, you are quite likely the leading contender for the Guinness Book of World Records for longest serving CSO. Um, It's really interesting because when I check out social media on occasion, it looks like I've just seen some interesting responses of people deriding the value of talking to someone who has been in the field for a very long time and doing InfoSec for as long as they had because technology has changed. But there's a lot of core fundamentals that really have maintained over the years. And what, what would you say to folks like this in order to show them the benefit of you know conversations exactly like this?
1: Well, I think there's some a point to where they are which is look if you took the me of 20 years ago as a you know when i first came into akamai as a security engineer and transplanted me forward 20 years and said okay do that same job now sure the skills that i had 20 years ago are you know a little bit useful there yes there's some foundational skills there but like we didn't have containers and kubernetes and continuous integration like we were building things like that so you might say well I've got nothing to learn from that kid 20 years ago mm-hmm. but over those 20 years a I've learned and developed uh, B I don't I don't I'm not hands-on <laughs> you, I, I get to interact with a keyboard uh, mostly to write powerpoints email or debug my local network uh, I am a systems administrator now for an Akamai facility that being my home uh, which I think is it's useful to remember how to do that So there's there's a separate piece, though, that is interesting, which is the question I get a lot is people say, you know, how do I follow your career path? And and I look at that and I say, my career path doesn't exist. Like, you've got to pick a hot startup that is going to go through an epic collapse. You know, our stock price dropped uh, like 600 to 1 or something uh, from its peak to, to where it sort of bottomed out before coming back we're the only company in the US stock market you know history ever to survive doing that so okay find that company be the only security person to sort of survive the layoffs that come through and then stick around when everybody else tells you you know go find a different job with a company that, that's not failing uh, and learn and adapt and if you can do that you could end up in my job. Um, it's some other company. But if you wanted this job, the seat that I'm in, that path doesn't exist anymore. Um, my team's 85 people. There's no one person who's stuck doing all of that work, thankfully for all of us.
0: Yeah. It, it's amazing how when we all started into our careers, our respective careers, it was almost like a choose your own adventure book. And you literally could create your own positions in many ways. And it seems to be more, um, more, uh, I don't know, more structured now than it was, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, you, you were talking about, you know, adapting and things to that effect. One of the interesting things is, you know, obviously can't not talk about the new landscape that we're dealing with <clears throat> in this pandemic world. And you mentioned that you were maintaining a, uh, a network in your house, <laughs> which is a lot of us are doing these days. And how do you maintain your focus and drive being a remote employee? I mean, you know, some of us have had the luxury of doing it for many, many years, but the vast majority of folks outside of working from home the occasional Friday, this is still relatively new in that they're still trying to get adjusted on how to do this. And what advice would you give to folks that are working remotely um, in the security field on how to, you know, keep their chin up, maintain and uh, and grow?
1: So I think there's a couple of key Elements there you know we call it working remotely and I don't like that phrase anymore because that implies that there's a center and that used to be true like when we had a headquarters that was staffed, you know like sixty percent of my team was located in that headquarters uh, and then we had folks in a couple of different locations and if you weren't in the headquarters you were remote. Um, you know I actually recall the first day of my remote work or distributed work uh, I was one of the first people. Uh, in in you know, my management team, the folks I work for, uh, to say, hey, I'm just going to go work from home because that's been my pandemic plan for a very long time. And I noticed that it's like, oh, look, I'm on video, but everybody's in a room together. So they face each other and nobody is facing the video unit. Even when I'm talking, because my voice doesn't come out of the screen, it comes out of this, you know, pod in the middle of the room. So they're looking at the pod, not at me. Uh, that's not the case anymore. We're we're all distributed. And so grab onto that because there's some huge benefits to being able to look everybody in the eye. Now, here's the flip side. It's really expensive to look people in the eye. It's emotionally draining um, because you're trying to constantly read. You feel like you're on display. So take breaks. Uh, normalize looking away from the camera. You don't have to stare into the camera all the time. Uh, you don't have to try to stare at people's eyes. So that's that's sort of a tactical piece. But then a bigger piece is recognizing that a lot of what makes a workplace valuable is the unstructured time. You you go to a meeting and then when you're walking back from the meeting, you have three minutes with a colleague in which you're talking about something else. How do you replace that time? Because often that's the most valuable time that you used to get. Uh, And so that's sort of some workplace things. But then the big piece is just how do you structure your day? You know, what are your breaks between work and not work? You know, do you are you fortunate? Like I have an office that's uh, on our second floor, which is where the kids' bedrooms are. So in the morning, they go downstairs and I come upstairs. So this is my space. Nobody comes and interacts with me. Um, I've got a door closed. You know, people send me text messages if they want to talk to me. So mm-hmm. it used to be when I was working from home, like my wife would come upstairs and, uh, you know, just walk in and like stand out of the corner of my eye to get my attention. Uh, and now we text each other. It's like, hey, can can we do this thing? Now, that's partly because her work's also sort of gone through the roof because uh, she's the president of our synagogue. So. If I think I'm having it rough, I look at trying to maintain a community of faith in this environment, which is a lot harder work than what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt at all. So when we roll things back to the beginning, like you were talking about, you know, getting into your career path and basically it was, you know, choose your own adventure book in many ways. How did this all begin for you? Like when you were working for the mouse all those years ago, did you ever imagine you would end up at this point?
1: Oh, God, no. Uh, I I used to work for Disneyland. That's the the reference there. Um, I've sort of always been uh, a hacker in some sense. And I'm going to use hacker here to mean somebody who looks at a system and wants to play at the boundaries of it. Uh, I remember when I was at Disney, I did costume issue. And we had these little uh, NCR sheets that we'd keep track of the inventory on. You know, someone would come get a costume. And you'd like fill out what costume it was and you'd put, you know, their, um, uh, the garments you'd given them and you'd rip off the, the front piece they'd get and the bottom piece we would keep so that when they returned their garments, you could make sure that they had returned everything. Um, and we were shifting to a mainframe system and it was fascinating because it had these four extra buttons, function keys that, um, I discovered you could program. Like it just macros, like nothing significant, but there were these like places where you would type the same twelve keystrokes in a row, doing a un- uh, inventory transaction. So I'm like, okay, well, let me program the function keys with those keystrokes because I don't want to have to type them like twenty five times a day, uh, or really twenty five times an hour. And like that was just what I did. I-, I enjoyed doing stuff like that. You know, I eventually went back to school, finished my degree, and I'd done an Air Force scholarship for it, and. and I, I'll be honest, I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, I didn't have appropriate vision for it. So I said, well, I'll be a weapons systems officer, the guy who sits in the back seat." Uh, uh-huh. not realizing two things. Um, one is that I was on an Air Force scholarship for a computer science degree, and there was no way they were letting me out of an engineering or communications officer discipline. I was <laughs> stuck in one of those. Uh, and the second is that you know, weapon systems officers were mostly on their way out at this point because we had automation to do so much of what they used to do. So more and more of the, the planes didn't have a backseater person. in it. And, and showing my ignorance here on uh, fighter jets, were you not too tall for one of those? No, I'm actually right at the cutoff. Uh, I did manage to by by telling the Air Force that it was my intent to become in the operations discipline. I got to spend a summer in the back seat of an F sixteen at Luke Air Force Base, which was a lot of fun. Um, It's it's also really interesting. Talk about as a a scary system. Right between your legs, there's a little handle that if you grab and pull, it ejects you. Um, And this is a plane in which you go to negative g's like positive high g is painful but negative g you want to grab something and hold on to it and there's this handle right between your legs um (laughs) you can understand how mistakes happen Uh, oh absolutely yeah one day i got a call i was literally at luke air force space doing this for the summer and i got a call which is very weird it's from a a major at a base in south carolina he says yeah you know we're looking at bringing you in you know when you get your commission." And I'm like, I thought you just got assigned somewhere. What is this? And it was the 609th Information Warfare Squadron. uh, And they had what's known as by name request authority, which is they could just pick people to come work there. They didn't have to wait to see who got applied, who had applied. And they had gone to the personnel folks and said, hey, who is graduating in the next year from MIT with a computer science degree? We want all of them. And that was me. All one of us. <laughs> that was the only Air Force officer that year with that degree. Oh wow! Um, so that was how I got into security. Was just sent down to South Carolina, learned network security, intrusion detection, uh, built and maintained uh, our network defense system. It was a Net Ranger for folks who really oh, remember wow. that.
0: Oh, I um, do.
1: Yeah, Net Ranger with the Border Guard 2000 right next to it. Um, I still have a border guard in my basement, which is really entertaining. Um, Network Systems Group was uh, was willing to send me one for, for troubleshooting, um, and then they never asked for it back. So I've been carrying it around for 20 years, wondering if I should dispose of it or find a museum to put it in. <laughs> so when you say uh, South Carolina, um, was this in the Charleston area? Oh, I wish. Uh, all of the, oh, okay. nice, all the nice bases in South Carolina got closed um, you know, when they were doing the base realignment. And I ended up in Sumter, which is the geographic uh, center of the state. And about two hours from anywhere you still probably don't want to be.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was wondering because I used to work at War and they had uh, all of those wonderful toys that you were talking about there as well. Yep. My goodness. It's interesting how many times we've uh, sort of crossed paths along the way.
1: Yeah, it really is a small world, and when you travel a lot, you know, you just you you almost run into people. There's a lot of
0: truth in that, and one of the really interesting things that I've always noticed is like back when I used to do Liquid Matrix Security podcast, we had stickers made up and we gave them out at conferences, and we'd see people in airports would walk up and they see it on my laptop, like, "Oh yeah, we listened to that podcast," or "Do you know that?" And it was always amazing how exactly small this group of security professionals was at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's really blown up over the years with, you know, uh, last time I went to ShmooCon as an example in Washington, D.C. back in January in the before times, it was stunning that I knew probably about 20 people there and nobody else. And it was just a sea of young faces. And I mean, on one one hand, I was feeling this, you know, very nostalgic for, the, the times where I could walk in and I knew everybody, it was like one giant community in that regard. And the other side is, it's still a giant community, but it is, you know, all the people that are going to come up and replace us. And that actually gave me a lot of hope for the future.
1: Which is awesome, right? Our, our career field is going from an amateur practice. In fact, one of the comments I often make is we aren't security professionals. We're the security amateurs. The people yes. who are coming in to replace us are the professionals. And like any professional discipline, that means they have better specialization. They have deeper skills in a lot of places. Now, the flip side is a passionate amateur knows a little bit of everything, and there's some value in that synergy. And so our goal is to help figure out for the next generation, how do they not end up on these very rigid career paths where it's like, oh, you're a security operator, and that's all you ever do. No, how do I get mm. you in front of a customer? Like, how do I see how you can grow? You know, because I often get that. You, know, how do you become a CISO? Is it better to be a technical or business one? And I'm like, I'm both. So I don't know how to be only one. Like, I came up on the technical side, but I launched products. Like, some of Akamai's, like, biggest products were things that I had fingers in at one point or another. Uh, I go on sales calls. Like, I wouldn't know how to do my job if I didn't talk to customers on a regular basis. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you that, oh, it's fine to be a a technical track CISO and never talk to customers.
0: But, you know, one of the bonuses there is you become what's essentially an interpreter. You're able to talk to the technical folks. You're able to talk to the customers. And somewhere in between, you know, find that happy balance.
1: I often joke that my uh, my greatest skill in meetings is recognizing that two people are speaking different languages that both look like English and being able to <laughs> speak a third language that also looks like English that both of them understand. Was that a Canadian dig? No it's not a Canadian dig <laughs> um, it's you know it's sort of funny because uh, uh, one of my employees is, is Canadian and um, I've uh, you, know, you and I make a lot of Canadian jokes for folks who don't know, Uh, on my father's side of the family were Canadian. They, they, my, my grandparents, uh, moved down from Canada because they didn't want to have to marry somebody from the farm and then married each other. Uh, They were third cousins. Um, so yeah, half Canadian. So Dave and I have always made Canadian jokes, but I try to, I've tried to wean them away because not all Canadians appreciate them.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, the ones that don't are, you know, there's three of them and they live in uh, North Bay. Um. I love North Bay. Just kidding. And for those of you who don't know, yes, I am Canadian. Um, so one of the really interesting things that has really struck me over the years—I mean, I've been on social media now since what 2007, or from for Twitter, as an example—is how people view how we are on social media versus how we are in meat space in real life, and it's it's amazing. And Alex Hutton once said uh, he said to me that. We are caricatures of ourselves on social media. So, bearing that in mind, what is something that people seem to misunderstand
1: about you uh, when they meet you in person? Oh, that's a really interesting one. Um, you know, it's it's sort of I don't I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think I've ever been stumped on a podcast question before. Now you got me. oh wow it wasn't it wasn't going for the stump. But yeah, cool. well, so. You know, on on social media, I really do try to be um, authentic, and I don't mean authentic in in all of the ways that I am me. But you know, if you don't follow me on Twitter, like Friday night, I'm tweeting out the wine that I'm celebrating Shabbat with, so you know I'm a Jewish drinker. Um, you know, on Sundays I tweet about football, although in COVID nineteen. You know, or in 2020, the NFL season appears to be every single day, but we don't know who's playing. Um, So I tweet about football all the time. Um, I tweet about, I actually tweet about security the least. That's probably one of the things that uh, sometimes surprises people. They'll look at my Twitter feed and they're like, there's nothing here about security. And I'm like, yeah, because there's really smart people out there and I occasionally retweet them. Um, But so I think that sometimes is people will come and they'll talk to me and they don't know the, the long history. Like I've had people who say, Oh, well, you're just a security executive. Like you don't know how to build systems. I'm like, well, maybe I don't today. I'm not the person you want doing your, your Kubernetes install or building something serverless today. Cause I don't know the tools, but yeah, I I've built systems and they're still running. Um, in fact, oh, you'll appreciate this. Speaking of building systems, the the Akamai vacation dashboard that uh, I built 15 years ago is being retired this quarter. We're no finally way. being replaced by a system administered officially by our IT department. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I am very excited. Um, so that is one down and like 15 more to go.
0: That is excellent. It's always good to hear progress because in the security field, we have a bad habit collectively of, you know, focusing on the negative. So celebrating wins, I'm always I'm always a fan to hear when something goes right. That's that's pretty awesome. Um, so we're getting up to the end of our time here. And I wanted to hit on something that really is toward incident response. Now when i was working for you that you had an incident response program like in one i've never seen it was really really good and i've you know i took a lot of lessons learned from that and then when i take that and i transpose it against your and my favorite sport uh, of the nfl i look at how they've been managing the covid outbreak right you know we saw the nba did their bubble and that worked pretty well yep. and then the nfl we're unfortunately seeing cases popping up here there and everywhere and I was like, "What do you think the odds are that the our Patriots will be able to make it through an entire season this year? And do you think we're actually going to get to end of job for one of a better term?"
1: That's a, a really good question. Um, you know, I don't think the bubble model would have worked for the NFL. So I'm not going to criticize that choice. I think that if the NFL had gone to a bubble model, it would have looked a lot like a strike year. Yeah, I think you'd have oh, lost an point. awful lot of veterans, you know, NFL players. Uh, especially the premier ones tend to be a little older uh, than NBA players. They tend to be more likely to have families. So, you know, I think a lot of them would, who were especially the ones who are, you know, on that last, you know, one to two years of their career might've just said, you know, I'm not leaving my wife and three kids for, you know, an entire eight month window. Yeah. Um, So, so I don't know that would have worked. And also the challenge is with a bubble style, is you there aren't enough football fields in one place?
0: Yeah, that's actually an excellent point.
1: Right, you you, you need to have thirty two football fields because you destroy a field whenever you play on it. Like it, it's care and feeding to get those fields sort of into a good state in between games. So that's Especially one. On yeah, Sorry, so no. you were playing daily. You know, multiple multiple games a day would have been crazy to try to do on one football field
0: um yeah i didn't actually appreciate that until right now that's a solid point
1: yeah now the the thing that i think the nfl got wrong is they should have done a bye week every four weeks in the season they should have just said we don't know the uncertainty is weird we're gonna put in bye weeks and now they could have done an option which said hey if we get to the end of week four then we'll just bring forward a week you know and and like just cancel that bye week and pull you know the week 20 game back to week five Um, But that's what's getting them right now. When they moved the Patriots Broncos game, they had to move seven other games around in the season to make that work. But you've now just cost the Patriots and the Broncos thereby like their bye week got moved forward to last week. And that's an irreplaceable resource. So if there's an outbreak in the dolphins and you have to start moving around Patriots games to accommodate dolphins, right? Cause that's what happens is if I want to move two teams game, I have to find a set of common opponents in a ring to move all of those games around to adjust, which means your division opponents are who actually get screwed the most when you have a COVID outbreak. Um, so I think that's some, some challenges there. I think they really didn't think about the COVID incubation period and how that would impact games. Like, So far, I don't think they've had an outbreak triggered from a game, but if they do, that's going to be a serious problem because you won't notice it until right before the next game is about to be played.
0: Yes, that's a good point. Just when I thought being an incident responder was one of the most stressful jobs, I just realized it's the person in charge of logistics for planning all these games that is probably not sleeping right now.
1: Oh my God, it is crazy. I know some people who are on the fringes of it and I've got a lot of admiration for the folks in the NFL who have to do the execution work. I may mean, not always agree with the high-level decision-making, and that's okay. Like, here's a really important thing, actually, advice for security professionals. You are not going to go your whole career always agreeing with what your CEO decides to do. Great leadership is knowing when you get to have your say and say, hey, look, boss, I don't think this is the right plan. I think you're missing this important element. But then when they say, yep, and we're going to go do this anyway, you go execute, you file away your grievances, your complaints, and now you're going to make that their decision right after the fact. And so I've got a lot of appreciation for the people who are making this decision right after the fact.
0: And I couldn't think of an absolute better way to wrap this podcast up than to leave it on that very note. Um, Andy, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, you've To all of our listeners, you've been listening to the Plain Text podcast and our guest, Andy Ellis from Akamai Technologies and uh, the CSO, that is. And thank you all for listening. And we're going to get back to a regular schedule now that things are ramping up. And uh, stay safe out there. Thanks again. <laughs>